Do you crave really focused, professional instruction in Italian wine, but find yourself so busy that a flexible schedule for coursework would be a must? Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school, has an excellent solution for you. The online Italian wine professional course, taught over eight weeks at your own pace. Developed by Italian Wine Central and endorsed by both the Italian Trade Commission and Slow Wine, the Italian Wine Professional sets a high standard for Italian wine education. This online program provides diverse and extensive study materials, webinars with industry experts, quizzes, an online exam, and even Italian pronunciation practice. Go to NapaValleyWineAcademy.com, that's NapaValleyWineAcademy.com, and click on Courses and Online Learning to sign up for the Italian Wine Professional online course. Or call 855-513-9738, that's 855-513-9738, to register over the phone. Use the discount code LEVYNVWA, that's L-E-V-I-N-V-W-A, to receive 10% off of the course tuition. Would you like to get into the vast world of Italian wine? The Italian Wine Professional Course is the perfect way to get serious about Italian vino on a schedule that's up to you. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. I'm Paul Osborne. Beverage Director of Parkside Projects Restaurant Group in Austin, Texas, and I love 750. Jared Sedoyan, Bar Manager at the Hawthorne in Boston. I'm Sean Paul, General Manager and Wine Buyer from Corkbus, Charlotte, North Carolina. Massimo Serdimini, Beverage Director at Italy in Chicago. Take it from these buyers. 750 has become the modern resource for restaurants, retailers, and bars all across the country. 750 gives them access to detailed wholesale pricing, a calendar of upcoming trade tastings, and seamless connections to their sales reps. Sign up today for free at 750.com. That's 750 spelled out, dot com. Hugh Johnson on the show today, a celebrated author and television personality commenter on wine for over 50 years. Hello, sir. How are you? Hi, I'm absolutely great. It's lovely to be back in New York on a sunny autumn day. It's perfect. Wonderful to have you here. So your dad did a, a bunch of things and trained as a barrister beforehand. Yes, no, my dad went really into the uh, risk and insurance business, and um, he was very involved with the early history of commercial aviation. Gosh, that sounds like a long time ago. But the, the, when um, the first jet liners were getting their certificates of airworthiness, that was the kind of thing that he was involved in. Uh, he was chairman of a thing called the Air Registration Board that gave certificates of airworthiness to aircraft, and um, sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. Was, he was very involved in the Comet, which is a tragic story of an aircraft that was way ahead of its time. It was the first jet airliner across the Atlantic. It was going to revolutionize everything. And then the wings fell off. You were born in 39. 39, so just when the Second World War was starting, and... Uh, but we were actually exiled, if you like. You know, we, a lot of people with children left London. I was born in London, and we were sent up to Scotland for the first three years. And then after the Blitz and the RAF that dominated the Luftwaffe, to give you a bit of pocket history, we came back to London. And uh, then I've lived, lived in London most of the rest of my life, really. I'm, I'm a proper Londoner. But your mother was half German. Must have put you in an interesting situation during the war. Yes, well, it put them in an interesting situation. My grandfather was German. He actually was, he was a bit of a steel tycoon, and he had steelworks in Germany, in the Ruhr, and also in Sheffield in England. And um, uh, he, he got something wrong, or somebody was suspicious of his motives, which was crazy, because, I mean, what would a... He was naturalized British... What would you do if you were in the other side, as it were, in the World War? I mean, everybody was, it was a tragic situation. But anyway, he was interned. They actually jailed him for being you know, a suspicious, powerful alien, which was crazy. In fact, he had two sons serving in the war, so it was unlikely 
Um, anyway, he was banged up in prison in London, and it actually it killed him sadly. So I never met my German grandfather. Your dad had a bit of wine society, wine around the house. Yes, I mean it was typical of the sort of upper middle class in in England. You you just took wine pretty much for granted. You you didn't try out a lot of new stuff, but Bordeaux was the the basic. And uh, there was always a bottle of, of good sherry in the house. And uh, we, we drank a very good Cru Bourgeois. I mean, I remember that was the standard drinking. Not that I was drinking, and I was too young. Um, but I, I was really interested in what people were eating and drinking. I found that I'd had a menu, which I had written and illustrated for a Sunday lunch or something at home when I was eight years old. So <laughs> clearly it's in my DNA. <laughs> But your family had experienced food rationing during the war. Oh, yes, yeah. But so had everyone else. So um, you kept chickens, you grew vegetables, you did everything you could to, to supply yourself, but still you were in the same boat as everyone else. And stuff like butter was very rare. I suppose, in a way, the food rationing made me all the more interested in food because I'm certainly interested in food. You know, allotment gardens were very, very popular. I don't really, you know, I was too young to be part of it. I do remember the disgusting smell of the chicken feed that had to be boiled up. The whole house stank of this stuff. (laughs) You went to boarding school as you got older. Yes. Like all young English boys of a certain class, you go get turned out of the house at the age of seven, go and stay miles from home. Um, Nowadays, people, I mean, my, uh, my wife being a granny, can't bear the idea of uh, the little ones, the grandchildren, going off to school. But it may have damaged some people, but most of it just muddled through, and actually we, we loved it. And you ended up at Cambridge. Yeah, then I went to a public school, a rugby school, uh, played rugby and all that, and then I... You were a hook, right? I, oh, you, how did you find that out? Well, I was, <laughs> a, I was a rugby guy, too. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yes, no, I hooked. Because uh, I'm small, and so I had to fit in the middle of the scrum between two big guys and hook away. It was actually a most unpleasant place to spend, because uh, when the scrum collapsed, it collapsed on top of the hooker every time. You extricated yourself and tried to catch up, and uh, it was mixed mixed feelings about that. And then after that, I went to, well, my father's old college at Cambridge, King's College. He was up there, uh, up, we say, um, just before the First World War, and then after it. I mean, he was one of, you know, a lot of people never came back from that war, obviously. But he joined the army as a reserve um, before he went up uh, to join the college. And then in 1914, he went to fight. And uh, although he was badly wounded, he came back in 1919 after the war to complete his course at the university. I had an uncle there as well, but in those days it was true. It was almost uh, almost hereditary, you know. If it was a family, it was a family's college. You went there. Then, when my brother tried to get in back in the sixties, they were turning down the sons of old alumni because they said they didn't want it to be too clubby. They wanted to embrace everybody. They couldn't, in all conscience, turn down two sons of somebody who'd been there and been loyal and everything else. So they let me in. That was the only reason they did. And also because I played the trumpet, and so did the admissions tutor. That's funny, because I was also a trumpet guy. <laughs> really? Yeah, we have all these connections. It's <laughs> funny. Great, I yeah. wouldn't have imagined. <laughs> so you got there, and you made a key friendship with a roommate. Yes, I shared rooms with a guy who then became a stockbroker. Terrible waste of talent, really, although he did make money. And he came back, uh, not terribly sober, from a dinner party late one night, and uh, and he showed me two glasses of red wine, and he said, um, what do you think of those? And I was probably half asleep, and I sniffed them both, they were burgundy, and I said, well, that one's all right, but this one is bloody marvellous, so what, what? And he said, well, they come from, one comes from this end of the field, and the other comes from that end of the field. Uh, and I said, well, that is absolutely amazing. Why does that happen? And then I got into wine and the geography of wine and the physics of the thing and how come that uh, every wine has a personality if you can find it 
or used to before they started being made in factories. And I suppose I was hooked from then. When I wanted something to write about, I found that was a wonderful subject. Which came when you worked at Vogue. When I worked at Vogue, I used to provide the grey matter that uh, held the photos of pretty girls apart. And um, I, I just was copywriter, you know, it could be fashion, it could be art galleries or theatre or something. And then I said to the editor, um, would you let me write an article about wine? She said, do you know about wine? And I said, no, not really, but I like it. And uh, so I wrote an article, came out in the Christmas issue of London Vogue in 1960. And it, it amused people. I mean, that was the whole point of the thing. And they said, how do you know? And I said, well, I ask questions. That's what journalists do. So you called up some people and said, what do you recommend? Yeah, I, I tried to find out who were the most sort of the celebrities of the wine world. I mean, there were people like, uh, well, one was uh, Andre Simon, who then became a great friend and, in fact, my patron in a way. A wonderful old Frenchman. When we first met, he was 83 and I was 23. And, and we hit it off. I said, God knows why, but uh, we just became first. I think he thought I could be useful because he um, employed me to do editorial work and then, and then to run his, the Wine and Food Society, which he had started, and he wanted a secretary for it, so he put me there. <laughs> Andre was a wonderful character. He, he started the wine of what is now called the International Wine and Food Society. You didn't need the word international then. And um, it was during the Great Depression, and people were not going out to restaurants to eat. Um, and the whole idea of caring what you're eating and drinking seemed a bit odd. But he organized uh, meals in, in London restaurants. The first one, I remember, was an Alsace meal. I don't remember, but 1934, I think it was. And, um, and, and people loved it. It gave them a, a, a way of having good food and well-matched wine together without feeling, feeling too guilty about it. Uh, and it worked so well that he came over to New York. And when he got off the boat, um, he'd obviously stirred up some publicity uh, because I think it was the Daily News had this wonderful photo on, on, in the paper and the headline was, Europe's Greatest Eater With Us. <laughs> but you can see a lot came out of that. You know, the Quarterly Magazine, which originally was mm. wine and food, but it ended up getting purchased by Conde Nast. Oh, yes. Um, it was really Condé Nast, because I'd been writing for Condé Nast, uh, for Vogue, House and Garden, other magazines. They had a, magazine, a men's magazine in Paris called Adam. And I, would do it, and I, and I was also writing for the, for the New York editions, which was a much better idea, because there was an extra zero on the check. <laughs> and I don't know why all English writers from England didn't come to America and Earn the extra zero, but they've um, confidence too. So uh, Conan Ash purchased Wine and Food. I was the editor, and I kept going at that until, in fact, I um, I left paid employment to my parents-in-law's distress. My daughter, they said, is marrying a young man with no work, but I was going to write a book, and that was by my whole concentration was on writing a book. And uh, I went round the publishers of London and said, um, I need an advance on a wine book. And they said, an advance for a wine book? They're crazy. Either you know about it or you don't. I said, well, actually, I have to do some research. Oh, they said, research, eh? Well, I said, I need a thousand pounds. And they just said, it's quite crazy. This, mind you, was in 1965. Um, so I asked a friend of mine, in the Sunday Times magazine, actually, uh, the art director. And I said, do you, can you think of anything? Where could I get the money? And he said, well, go to this publisher, who's actually Thomas Nelson. They've just published the first illustrated, you might call it coffee table, cookbook, which was a fantastic hit. And all London was talking about the fact they'd uh, sold 30,000 copies or some fabulous number in those days. Uh, and they said, well, didn't you tell him you're going to do the wine equivalent which I did, and I did, and, 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 um, and boy, it worked. <laughs> and you did a book called Wine. Just called Wine. 
Where did that name come? No, just kidding. <laughs> I, I love four letter words. That's what it came from. It really set a template, I think, in terms of what I think of as um, the British style of integrating history. Well, it's certainly non-technical, and it was it was a bit romantic, you know, it was a bit of a dreamer's book. But but why, that's so important with wine. I mean, if you, you've got to connect wine with other things that you enjoy. Uh, where, where's your priority when you choose a bottle of wine? You go to a restaurant, you have the list in front of you. I mean, a lot of people just look at the right-hand column to see the prices, and that's understandable. But uh, it stops a party if you start reading a great long wine list and you can't make up your mind. You've lost the conversation. There's no point. I go for personal connections. I know that most people most enjoy a wine where they have some connection with the maker, they've been on holiday to where it comes from, they can picture it in their mind as something other than just a plain drink because it's those connections that make wine so lovely. I like reaching out. I mean, I like picturing the general reader rather than the wine geek. I love wine and I love people through wine. I love people and it all fits together to be uh, one of the best parts of life. But for me, your writing is more empowering than know-it-all. I know that my readers don't want a lot of techie stuff. They can find that, and now they can find it online anyway. So why put it on the page? If you stir their enthusiasm, or, or rather their, their curiosity, so they want to know a bit more, then the job is done. And it must have been interesting coming to that perspective about how you wanted to write, because you had already, by that point, edited food and wine writers like Elizabeth David and others. Well, to say I edited Elizabeth David, I, I chased Elizabeth David, actually. I mean, she, to me, was the greatest writer on food or anything to do with the table. And when I was editing Wine and Food magazine, I went and knocked on her door. And she very graciously allowed me to... She didn't write specifically for my magazine. To start with, she allowed me to reprint something she'd written. And then we became very good friends. I mean, very good friends. And in fact, when I was married, she orchestrated our honeymoon. She told us exactly where to go and introduced us to people. And, and um, I, I adored her. She was absolutely wonderful. What do you think her real strength was as a writer? Honesty and clarity and great gift for words. But I, funnily enough, only recently I decided to look up the first thing that she'd ever published, the first paragraph of her first book, which was called Mediterranean Food, um, published in 1952, I think. And it was just, it was so perfectly aimed and so tuneful in its way. She just struck a wonderful chord immediately, and she never went off pitch. And you also worked with uh, Evelyn Waugh as a writer. No, I didn't work with him. I, I persuaded him to write a piece for the magazine I was editing. I mean, I could write you a list. It all sounds very grand, but it was, you know, that's what editors do. They, um, I got uh, Baron Philip de Rothschild to write some poetry for us, which was then translated into English by his friend, the playwright Christopher Fry. I want to republish those sometime because they're, they're good. Uh, so like any editor, I was chasing talent, but really, my strong suit then was travel writing. I mean, it wasn't just wine writing. And I, I, I wrote a series of articles for New York House and Garden. They gave me a wonderful job. I did a series on deserts of America. So they sent me to Alaska, uh, to not strictly deserts, but to Texas, Big Ben, to the Appalachians, the big spaces of America. And I was writing travel articles. I absolutely loved it. Best job I ever had, really. And along the way, you also got to meet a number of people in the wine trade, like Loeb and... But Loeb was, that was a, as a Cambridge student, because, you know, the, the wine merchants of London are pretty savvy, and they know that their best future customers are studying at Oxford and Cambridge. So they will take tastings of, of wonderful wines. And in the case of Otto Loeb, he... Mainly we studied, as it were, Moselle wines with him, or Mosel as we call them these days. And um, we learned a lot about wines that are almost forgotten now because there was this terrible 
collapse of the German wine trade, and that's another story in the 70s. But then in the 50s and 60s, the greatest white wines came from Germany. In fact, you expected to drink them. If you went to a, a banquet in those days, the first white wine was German. I feel like Riesling is something that's always been associated with you. I mean, it's easy for writers who don't know you very well to paint you as a Bordeaux man. Obviously, from the writing, you like Burgundy. But it seems like Riesling is a, a special love affair. Well, I feel that you've got to be supportive of this underrated grape. I mean, it, it, it's the most versatile grape in the world. Think of the lightest, driest wines. and it, it can do more in the way of delicacy and intensity at the same time than any other grape can. I mean, a, a Moselle cabinet can be light as a wisp, light as a feather, and yet in the flavor, it's punchy. It, 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 it's a wonderful thing that Riesling can do. There isn't another grape that could do that. Uh, so I've always been supportive of Riesling, and I've got a lot of German friends, and uh, it, it doesn't monopolize me at all. I just want people to know how good it can be. I feel like you've been uh, very supportive of a lot of regions that were New World regions or overlooked Old World regions that weren't getting a lot of acclaim. Well, as far as the New World is concerned, we were talking a moment ago about uh, Otto Loeb, the London wine merchant, actually a German. And uh, he brought to us in Cambridge a tasting of California wines. Now, that was really far-sighted because this was in 1950. Eight or nine. Yeah, it's Burrier beat by a couple decades there. Yeah, absolutely. And I knew names that are now extinct, like uh, Italian Swiss Colony, uh, Louis Martini was there, of course, BV was there. Anyway, this was the roster of California wines. I thought they were fantastic, particularly because I'd already been to California and I could picture the Napa Valley and San Francisco. Between, in my gap between school and university, I spent about nine months traveling around the States. I claim to have visited every state except North Dakota, I think. <laughs> anyway, I, nearly, I, I loved San Francisco so much, I nearly stayed there. Easy city to fall in love with. Oh, yes. Yeah. Each time I go back, I think, why? why I can throw away my return ticket. But uh, it, it was early in the game, and then when Otto Loeb brought these wines to Cambridge and I tasted them, it all came together in my head. But, of course, there was no market for them in Europe at all. And therefore, they were unobtainable. And later on in life, a little later on, um, with some friends, Harry Waugh, who was known to every wine lover in the States, and uh, three or four of us started something we called the Zinfandel Club, just in order to be able to ship these undemanded, wines that we loved from California, and you couldn't buy them in England, so we shipped them over just for members of this little club. Very soon, the penny dropped, and one of our friends, Jeffrey Roberts was his name, uh, started a business importing them, and then we didn't need to do it ourselves anymore. But that was those were fascinating days when you're trying to convince people that the wines from California were as good as they were. And then, of course, then it really started to happen in the 60s, notably with exactly 50 years ago now with uh, Robert Mondavi and his new winery, very rapidly followed by Don Chapelet and his new winery, and the whole thing started to build in an extraordinary way. One generation before, there's a lovely picture of you and Chelichev in your book, A Life Uncorked. Oh, yes. Andre came to, he came to visit us in our house in England as well as me coming here. And he, um, it was it was wonderful that here was an industry of infinite potential, summed up in such a, a small number of winemakers. So you felt you could master it. In fact, I, I did. At one point, I rashly thought I did. And with my friend Bob Thompson in Saint Helena, Napa, uh, we wrote what we thought was the first consumer guide to California wine. It came out in 1975, I think. It wasn't that early, but nobody else had done it. And Bob did. Bob really knew it. He was a wine correspondent of the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle, so he really knew what he was talking about, and I was just sort of helping along. Um, the book, 
I'm very proud of it, but it was it was scrapped. It was simply scrapped because we were sued by some crazy Italian winemaker in the Central Valley who said that we had cost him a national distributorship uh, by saying that um, he didn't grow all his grapes, or I can't remember some technical detail. You know, he was actually buying grapes. Um, and that's pretty much what we understood. He probably told us. Anyway, he sued our publisher, Morrow. And you know what publishers do if they're sued? They junk it. They just dump it. And the book was pretty much pulped. There are not many copies around. And that was a terrible shame. He actually he, well, he wanted half a million dollars from the authors, as though they had any money. And the story went on because there was um, the uh, wine correspondent of the Los Angeles Times, Nathan Croman, was a lawyer. And I told him this story. And he said, for God's sake, he said, I'll get that sorted. And he wrote to Ernest Gallo, Bob Mondavi, key industry figures. Do you realize what's happening? As soon as a writer has the uh, originality and the energy to write up our industry, he gets sued and bankrupt. You can't let this happen. So they went to see Mr. X and said, get off his back. But by that time, the book was gone. That's really too bad because, you know, the writing that you wrote about Chapelet and your collected mm-hmm. on wine is really beautiful. Well... They make beautiful wines in a beautiful place, and they're beautiful people. I mean, it should be beautiful. <laughs> but the, your evocation of the '69 Chapelet, I thought was oh wow, what a wine! It was, it was it was quite alarming. You thought this is hardly wine. This is taking me on a trip somewhere. And then in vintage, you returned to California as well as a number of other places. We were we filmed the crush at um, the Robert Mondavi Winery. It must have been, I think about the third or fourth crush, right at the beginning. They had a priest bless it, and, and of course, Bob made it one of his wonderful speeches. It, it, it made good good television. Mandavi, there's a great picture of you in A Life on Court with you and him in the swimming pool, and he's kind of laying back like a... a oh, yes, yeah, and on Wapo Hill, his wonderful house on Wapo Hill, where the... It was a heavenly place. They had a guest house, and that's where Judy and I used to stay sometimes. And it's such heaven out there. Then these great big live oaks, which sort of tower over the building, and their bedroom, their summer bedroom, was simply outside, under the live oak. Um, it was a heavenly place. You did do that TV series, Vintage, which was a spin-off of the book. And what was that like? Oh, it was great. I got to travel everywhere with a, with a wonderful crew. I was very lucky because my producer was guy called Michael Gill, who had really set the standards for documentary television. He made this very, very famous BBC series called Civilization with Lord Clark, Kenneth Clark. And then his production values were as high as they could be. I mean, everyone said he takes infinite pains thinking through the story, the script, everything else. And I was lucky enough to persuade him to produce my series. So it cost an extraordinary amount of money. And uh, I had to go and find the money. That was the problem because I was one of the producers. And I found it right here in New York. I met John Mariani, the one of Villa Bamfi, John and Harry Mariani, the brothers. And I told them my plan to make this 13-part television series about the history of wine. And they looked at me and they said, well, I think we could help. They said, wine has been so good to us, we want to give something back. And they really bankrolled the series, uh, which enabled us to to go almost everywhere and do almost everything. We were so lucky. And the sad thing was it was a PBS series. And so rule one of PBS is that the sponsor may not get any publicity out of it at all. So we would go to Robert Mondavi, all over the world. We were visiting people, identifying them, saying, and meet Mr. X or Y. Um, And then we went to their fabulous new winery in um, Maltangelo, uh, which was the the Space Age winery of the mid-'80s. 
Uh, it had all the latest bells and whistles. It was a wonderful place to film, too, for that reason. But I wasn't allowed to tell people where it was. I, I was so I was so angry and disappointed. I thought, this is madness. You know, was I advertising this guy? No, I was simply cred crediting him. But uh, anyway, that's the way it is. That's PBS. I mean, I can only imagine with everything you've accomplished in your career that there's had to be some major frustrations over the years with just bureaucracy or business. Yeah, usually you manage to skate around them. <laughs> <laughs> because another thing you did was you managed to publish the first wine atlas. Yes, well, I wish I could claim that that was my idea, but it wasn't. But uh, at that time, I was back into magazines. I was editor of a sort of fashion crossover magazine called Queen. Queen, Queen. yeah, Queen, yeah. Which was excellent and great fun. But I've been doing it for two years, and then my old publisher from Thomas Nelson, James Mitchell, started his new company called Mitchell Beasley, and he rang me up and he said, could we have lunch? Uh, do you think there's any connection between wine and maps? And I said, connection? You're joking. Wines are maps, practically. It's the, there's the only product. Wine is the only product which is sold through geography, where the exact address gives it its value. And I said, can we make real maps, good maps? He said, yes, we've got a, a backer. who turned out to be a cartography company called George Phillips. We had lots of money, and they wanted themed maps. So um, I said, I want ordnance survey quality maps every detail so they will be believable people won't think i'm just making up all this stuff but you can't fool around with a map i mean if, if you're an author and you don't know something you say something else but <laughs> with a map uh you've got to know it because people are looking at the ground you can't just sort of have a gray area and so he said yeah whatever it costs and it was a huge investment for a publisher it made a totally believable book and rather a good-looking book. And uh, my wife did, the, she's a graphic designer, she did the sort of the layout. How do you integrate maps with uh, text and pictures and captions and uh, little miniature wine labels as examples and all that? Uh, it sold unbelievably. So nobody, no publisher could believe that you could do an expensive uh, reference book and sell millions which is what we did. And that layout really seems to play into it. I mean, at one point you observed that it was almost kind of a magazine-like layout. Well, I, yeah, that influenced me. Having, uh, having edited Queen magazine, I had worked out clearly in my editorial head uh, what people's priorities are. When you, when you open a page, you look first at the pictures, second at the headline, third at the caption to the picture, any number of captions that there are, and then at last do you go to the block of grey text when you convince yourself that you want to actually commit to reading it. So I worked extremely hard on those short bits of text, the sound bites, if you like, nowadays, and uh, I wrote every one of those with intense concentration. <laughs> yes, one time I, uh, I was working in a little office that James Mitchell had rented in, in the middle of London, and there was a big mirror in front of me, and I was busy writing the captions. Uh, and I took a bit of soap, and I wrote on the mirror, three facts a line, because the typical caption was 36 words. There would probably, therefore, be maybe 10 words in a line, and that had to contain three facts. So James came in, and he took the bar of soap, and he crossed out three, and he wrote six. <laughs> So they are very intense. That's the purpose. I want to get you hooked. Because I feel like that's almost a through thread of your writing, say, from the 80s, is that there's a lot in a sentence. That's the intention. How much rewriting do you do? Well, I still write by hand normally with a pen on a piece of paper. I then move to my, in the old days, typewriter, now a computer, I, and then I, and I type it. I print it out. I look at it again, and it reads differently from the handwriting. And so I then, that's the first editorial stage. And then I scroll all over it, and then I type it out again. And by that time, it's pretty much edited. 
Because sometimes some of the implicit questions are answered maybe in parentheses or with a semicolon in the sentence in a way that to me doesn't sound like a first draft. It sounds like reading it and then including a little piece of information that the reader would want to know, but on it's not the first thought. No, it may well be an afterthought, but what I try very hard to, to do is to make it flow in the sentence so it doesn't strike you as an afterthought. I mean, I think you're the master of it. I mean, really beautiful. That's why I just can't think that anyone just does it off the cuff. Do learn tricks. For example, in the opening sentence of whatever it is, you may want to make a bold statement. But if it's too bold, it's too much of a challenge for people. So, I mean, it sounds like a little physical trick. It is. I usually break the opening sentence with a little clause about something. It may not be necessary, but you'll find three words in. There's a comma, and then something which is a by-thought, and then we come back in. Because that, you know, that lets the reader, it, it feels friendly to the reader. I think something else you do that feels friendly is to encourage people to be a little off the beaten path. There's a, a way that it's empowering to tell people that conventional taste may not necessarily be yours. Oh, yes. I mean, I'd, uh, I think all, all opinions are pretty much equal. If you practice, you upgrade your opinion, sure. But um, I want people to feel on a, on a level. You know, I don't want to preach to anyone or talk down to them. I think it puts them off. I really like the device in Onwine where you make it look like a manuscript by having notes in the columns oh yes yeah that sort of explicates something that maybe a specific readership would have known from following you every month in a column but maybe someone picking up the book might not like for example where you lived at a certain time or that's right yes it gives an alternative way of approaching it and it, it it's inclusive that's the idea you're saying come on in and i think you know a writer who doesn't say to his readers come on in is, is going to miss all the potential so chart me a line here. André Simon was a Frenchman who worked for a champagne house and then wrote a number, many, many books. A hundred books, I think. And his style you summed up once as, as oblique, and uh, it contained a lot of florid prose. There's you, there was Gerald Asher, there was Waugh. Then you worked with somebody who you sort of passed the torch to professionally in Jancis. Yes, well, Jancis and I have known each other for a very long time. I think... I gave her her second job, I believe, which was I was I am, am was and still am president of the Sunday Times Wine Club, and we used to publish a neat little magazine called Wine Times, which was totally unpretentious. It was just for our members, but we set a very high standard editorially. I hope, and the first editor we had was a very well-known writer, Cyril Ray, uh, and then when he retired, I approached Jancis who was then working for a trade paper, and she was brilliant. Um, what struck you right away? What was it that you saw in her at the first? Professionalism, really. I mean, she didn't. She, she had checked all the, all the things that needed checking before she even set a pen to paper, I reckon. Uh, and charm, you know, that these two things don't always go together. But <laughs> you both share a sense of humor. I mean, you're both funny in a quick way. Yes, we like understatement, and, and above all, I love things to come across quickly. It was the word. I love brevity and elision and um, little references that people may pick up, though it's not a tragedy if they don't. But if they do, then it adds to the, to the depth of the thing. And um, I, I really love brevity. I mean, I hark back to the days of the telegram, which... Not, you know, young people don't know what a telegram is now, but a telegram was something where you you sent a message and it cost you quite a lot because it was going whizzing across the world immediately. Um, and uh, we used to call it a shilling a word, when a shilling was quite a lot of money. Um, so you thought very hard and you, if necessary, you made up words to save the count, save the money. Um, and uh, I loved that concision the fact that you've had to concentrate on what you want to get across and it's clear um so that's my way of working because sometimes you'll make up a word you'll do a little coinage that's not really a word that's often a combination of two words sometimes in your writing yeah if i think it's clear i'll do that and so you were working with Jansen. well you know it's funny that you had to pay by the word because it was uh the first book was just wine right <laughs> <laughs> like, like, exactly. you know we can't afford and more a short word at that 
Yeah. Well, it's uh, Janis was brilliant at that, and then she. Um, can't remember what her next column was, but before very long, she was great friends with the wine columnist of the Financial Times, Eddie Penning Russell, who was the great Bordeaux scholar. And um, she, he was her sort of, I had Andre Simon, she had Eddie, a sort of senior figure who was supporting her. And, and uh, she then became and, and very much is a central figure in, in, in British wine knowledge, then moving on rather rapidly from there, when I had done four editions of my World Atlas of Wine on my own, and it came time to do the fifth, and I rather, you know, I felt, God almighty, have I really got to go through that for the fifth time on my own? And I asked Jancis if she would join me and, and do it. And I'm, I'm not to my surprise. She said yes, because she could see what a key book it has become, you know, that all wine lovers get their world out as a wine sooner or later. Um, so she agreed, and we uh, went to work on the fifth one. It's been one edition every six years, give or take. Uh, so we're on seven, what, seven, sixty to 42. That's exactly right. It's 42 years old, the book. And... Um, now we've got to face number eight. <laughs> oh dear! But she, over time, she has taken on the heavy lifting. You know, I'm, I, I read everything, I comment on it, I do some stylistic stuff on it, but basically, she and her, and her staff, because she now has uh, on her website, she, she employs, I think, three. I think it is now really, really good people. So they make the book infinitely more complete than it would be without them, uh, infinitely more intense. I think if it were my book still on, on my own, I would reduce the intensity because I think there's only so much fact that a reader can take in. And after all, nowadays, um, you're after facts, you, you Google. But it must be striking to you with every edition how much the wine landscape has expanded. Oh, heaven yes. I mean, in the first edition, I think we had one tiny little sketch map of New Zealand, just with the comment, there is no worthwhile wine in New Zealand. Well, you can see what's happened. That was, that was true. <laughs> uh, you can see what's happened since then. Uh, so wherever you go, I mean, it, I had this lovely feeling that I was a pioneer. And in the 70s, certainly, I was one of the first English wine writers who went to Australia. And... Uh, and then one country after another, Chile, Eastern Europe. We used to import a lot of wine from Bulgaria. But Australia was really important for you, and you met a couple of key people there, like Len Evans. Well, Len became my great friend. You know, we were, he was an extraordinary character. He was a Welshman who'd gone out to New Zealand at first, and then Australia, wanting to be a great golf pro. And he was good, but he, maybe he wasn't absolutely great. He then applied for the job of food and beverage manager of the first modern hotel ever in Australia, which was the Hilton in Sydney. Completely new idea. The Aussies were not interested before that. And he made, a, he made it famous instantly. He got hold of all the best-known winemakers in Australia. He started Monday dinners, and, and, and then he started a column for the Sydney newspaper, the Bulletin, and soon... Len was where it was at with Australian wine. And then he remained that for the rest of his life, practically. He was an outrageous man. He had such a sense of humor. When he had 70th birthday party, he invited friends from all over, and we were there. And uh, it started with a, um, a treasure hunt. He had this big garden, this property in the Hunter Valley, and we were all dressed. He made us dress in sort of cricketing white clothes. Um, and the winner of the treasure hunt, the prize for winning, was a Jeroboam of Bollinger champagne with no cork in it. <laughs> that, that's Len's sense of humor. Had to pour it right then, did you? There, right then and there. <laughs> Makes for a good party, no matter who wins. <laughs> exactly. 
And someone who kind of became Mr. Australia after Len passed was James Halliday. And you wrote a book with James Halliday. It was a really interesting book. Yes, The Art and Science of Wine. Uh, James and I met with Len, undoubtedly, at one of his endless drunken parties in Melbourne or Sydney. God, we were so tight. And uh, James cornered me and said, I'm starting a winery. In, um, in the Yarra Valley near outside Melbourne. Uh, but I need capital. And I thought with your London connections, you might be able to help. So I went around the city of London, not that I have many connections there, but the, his wine was already brilliant. He made um, not just the Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay, which are very much associated with the Yarra Valley, but... Uh, Wonderful cabs, mellows. This was Coldstream Hills. Coldstream Hills is its name. And anyway, we found the capital to get him on the road. And then, you know, we became fast friends. So then we dreamt up this idea of doing a popular science book about wine. Oh, I get it. Oh, I didn't put that together. That was a popular yeah. science, like how it works. Yes, but exactly. All the decisions that winemakers have to take from where to plant, what to plant, right through to when to bottle at the end of it, and, and so on. And uh, James was more on the technical side, and you were the color man, or how did it work? That's how it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know half this stuff. It was a key text for me when I was starting. Yeah. The, the book is still valid. You know, we've done a second edition, and that's even more valid. But uh, we had a bit of a dust-up with Robert Parker over there. Oh, he was sort of... Uh, he reviewed it. Gave you a hard time about filtering or something. Oh, the, the bee in his bonnet at that particular period. I felt like he felt filtration. the need to take out the British competition almost, kind of. Well, he did it in a very clumsy way because it, filtration was a bee in his bonnet. And, you know, there are good reasons and arguments why against filtration and there's some arguments for filtration. Anyway, James and I, in a fairly balanced chapter, said, you know, he... You can have problems if you don't filter. Biological problems, bacteria problems, and so on. Uh, anyway, the, in his review, it was very clear that Bob had just looked up F for filtration, and he didn't say anything about the rest of the book at all. He just said, how could these respectable people justify filtration? And I wrote to him. And Anyway, we, we, we never got on, really, so it doesn't matter. Different style. Yeah. He liked to repeat himself, as you pointed out in a kind of rejoinder to that when you address that in a decanter review. You've done your research. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. But in the end, I can't, you know, I can't give myself too much of the credit, but the plain fact is that when I have written about the overuse of oak and the over-alcoholic wine, it may take 10 years for the effect to sink in, but I do find that sometimes that's happened. I mean, you must have seen a change in the market when the Americans came in that maybe bothered you at times. Yes, particularly the scoring business, because um, you know, I, I do not score wine. I don't see the point of scoring wine. I mean, okay, it's an instant opinion, and it's a shortcut, but it's particularly useful to wine investors, and I'm not a fan of wine investors because it's you know, easy for them to do a little equation by saying, well, it's... This wine is uh, comes from a first-growth chateau. Its drinking window is 25 years. It's got 95 points. There's some kind of algebra coming out here. Uh, so I'll, I'll put my money on that, and uh, which puts up the price for everybody else. I mean, I deplore it because I don't buy wine to sell. I buy it to drink if I can afford it, which is... <laughs> Unfortunately, it happens less and less often now. I mean, the prices of trophy wines are just scary, and there's no point. And you must have seen that because you're one of the board of directors at Chateau Latour for a number of years. I was, yes. For 15 years, I was um, on the board. That was, it, that was the age of innocence, honestly. It really was. I mean, a wonderful remark was made by uh, a California friend of mine, at about that sort of period. And he said, do you know, Hugh, he said, fine wine used to be for the worthy, now it's for the wealthy. And that packs so much truth. 
you know, you used to drink fine wine because you could identify it, because you'd take the trouble to look for it. Um, and then when you opened it with friends, you would very much see the point and follow its career and, and its maturity and everything else. But, you know, billionaires want the best and they want it now. It's notorious. And so I wonder whether these wines should first growth Bordeaux makers be making wine to last for the 30, 40 years that it can when they know perfectly well that the people who buy it are not going to, they don't have sellers to keep it in, or very few of them. That's not, the, the, not what's happening anymore. Uh, the reason that they do it, of course, is because of this drinking window. You know, if a wine lasts 30 years, there's plenty of opportunities to buy and sell it. I had thought about it that way. But, and, and I think you know a lot about the longevity of wine because you've had some of the oldest ever. You had a 1540 Riesling, and then you made Tokai for a while. I still do. Oh, yeah. No, the, the, everyone wants to know about this 1540 wine, which just sound too freaky for words. It's only about 400 years too old. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, I, I was very young then. I was working for Vogue, and I was invited to a little tasting in, in London. A German wine merchant, a chap called Rudy Nassauer, I remember, and he had managed to buy this antique bottle, which came from Bavaria. It came from the cellars of the King of Bavaria, who collected old wines, and its history. We just assumed that there's some truth in this because it was very, it was well documented. This wine came from a vintage of 1540, which was the hottest year, driest year ever in Germany. And the River Rhine dried up, and the builders used wine because they couldn't get water for their mortar and so on. Uh, it was a legend. And as the Germans did in those days, they used to make a special big, big barrel for top vintages. So this barrel that it was put in still exists. It's still in, in the city of Würzburg, in the cellar where it always was. Uh, and the wine stayed in that barrel for about 200 years, waiting for the bottle and the cork to be invented, really. Um, and during that period, it was probably it became a sort of Solera. No doubt they topped it up with their best wine. But still, some of that wine was of this 1540 vintage. And um, it is. Uh, it was open. After a series of... Other old German wines, sort of early 19th century Johannesburg, I remember. And they were so finished that they were, you couldn't bring yourself to, to even sniff the glass. I mean, they were, they, they were rotting. And so we all thought, well... It's <laughs> only getting worse. Fingers, cro fingers yeah. crossed for this. <laughs> you uh, first, friend. <laughs> <laughs> but when it opened, it was poured. For the first two or three minutes, it was very much alive. And I mean, that's the definition. This, this had been alive in the bottle for over four centuries. Um, it was sweet. It was totally madderized, obviously. It was dark. It was something that would make you think, maybe this comes from Germany. I can't say what. Um, and then it died, and then it was just vinegar after that. But the fact that we actually imbibed a drop of something that was ripened by the sun of a summer before Shakespeare was born, I mean, it was unbelievably inspiring. It, 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 it made me realize what a miracle wine is. Here is the, the energy of the summer sun, ripened fruit, which then ferments and then can live for centuries. There's no, there is nothing else in nature remotely like that. Yeah. When, when you think that wine expresses the place where it, where it was made and the time where it was made, and in all human experience, there is no other product which has this crossover of pinning down time and place the way wine does. It's miraculous. I feel like just as you did maps, you also did exactly that. You charted wine on time in a number of your writings. Yes, when I did the, the, uh, my first book, I was wanted a little color of history, and then with the Atlas, history was not the point. 
But then years later, I thought to myself, well, you have to explain to yourself why it's done in this way there and in another way somewhere else. And of course, it all comes from history. And I became very intrigued in how the great varieties, whose names everyone knows, the Cabernet and Pinot Noir and so on, how they'd come to be identified and preserved and selected and associated with particular regions. Because you know, there's a kind of natural selection going on here. And yet, these, the farmers who were making these grapes were very rarely people who could afford to experiment. So they were gradually taking the vines in their vineyards that were got least disease, had the biggest crops, had all the desirable characteristics, um, and selecting them. But how many centuries would it take to arrive at, a, <laughs> at the ideal thing at that rate? So it's still a bit mysterious to me. I mean, Pinot Noir was famously developed by the Cistercian monks in Burgundy and then chosen by the Dukes of Burgundy, and that had highly respectable background, after all. The Catholic Church, the Dukes. Um, but that's not the case with every grape. Uh, far from it. In fact, Cabernet was... Where does Cabernet came from? They now think with... I mean, Genesis's new, the great book, using DNA to trace the ancestry of 1,300 different grape varieties. Absolutely fascinating. But there was none of that. It, it was all rumor and supposition. Where did this grape come from? And the story was that Cabernet had been brought, funnily enough, from Spain to Bordeaux, but not long ago. People think, oh, it must have been there forever. It was seriously planted in Bordeaux only a few decades before it was planted in the Napa Valley. Isn't that a shocking thought? Oh, the first time before Prohibition. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, Cabernet was introduced to the Napa Valley in the 1830s or 40s. It was introduced to Bordeaux around 1800 or 1780. So it's an extraordinary thought. You know, I think it's the Bordeaux grape, but boy, it was getting around. And yet, where did it come from? What about the Tokai endeavor that you... Well, that's part of wine history. In my personal case, it goes back to the year 1970, when I was taken on a press trip, actually to taste the Polish vodka. Uh, a wonderful Polish guy lived in London, and he said, you've got to come taste. And I must say, Polish vodka was a revelation. Fantastic stuff in the... In the seventies, uh, was that the bison grass stuff? Or? Yeah, that was the best. But there were lots of coloured ones with lovely flavours. And uh, then while we were there in the south of Poland, we went to see the famous brewery in the Tatra Mountains in the south, the Jivets Brewery. And then he said, "We should go on. We should go on, and we should go across the mountains, to Hungary, and go to Tokai." So we did. And it was oh, the weather was bad. The place was awful. And we were taken down into the old state cellars. The most extraordinary thing I've ever seen in my life. Huge stone carved, you know, carved in the caves, full of bottles. There were barrels in the background, but these rooms were full of bottles, all standing up and all covered in white moss. An extraordinary sight. And then you glimpsed through the white of this sort of lovely cotton woolly stuff, which is a fungus. Uh, you just saw a little gleam of gold. Or, um, and we had a tasting of wines going back, oh, at least 100 years. It was a total revelation to me. I'd heard of Tokai. You know, it was an established fact that it used to be considered the greatest wine in Europe and fetched the highest prices. But always rare. You know, you could only get it if you were the Austrian emperor or something. Um, so I tasted them and then put it at the back of my mind because you weren't going to get that anywhere. And then it became very obvious at the end of the 1980s that communism was on the skids. And just after the Berlin Wall fell in, in uh, November 1989, I went with uh, a historian winemaker friend of mine, a Dane called Peter Vinding. He now makes very, very good wine in Sicily on Mount Etna. Um, we said, let's go and see whether we can taste any great Tokai and see what can be done. 
So right at the beginning of 1990, we went to this village, <laughs> whose name is Mad, which of course got attached to us straight away, um, and tried to do something. And we found some wine farmers, some grape farmers, who had managed to keep something to themselves, whereas the state was buying the entire production, sending it off in tanker trucks to Russia. Um, there were some personal winemakers still, thank God, who'd survived by that time uh, 30 years of communism. And under their cellar stairs, they had a little barrel, which was their treasure. We tasted it. I mean, it's still here, this wine. So we formed a, a little cooperative with various growers and set about reintroducing it to the world, which we have done, I must say. It's taken 26 years. Uh, and we started the Royal Tokai Wine Company. Royal, because Hungary was very proud of being a kingdom before it became part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Hungarians don't like imperial. They don't like emperors. Hum Hungary has a king, so right, it was going to be the Royal Tokai Wine Company. And uh, with Peter Vinding's ideas, with grapes that had to be very carefully selected because our members of our little group didn't really understand that how, how you have to select. Um, we had a marvellous French lad who was doing his national service. He was, in, he was about 20 years old, a chap called Samuel Tinon, who was still living in Tokai, making marvellous wine. And he came from the sweet wine part of Bordeaux. And uh, he came to help with the first vintage. And... Uh, Peter couldn't stay, and I couldn't stay. We had other stuff to do. Uh, but he stayed right through the vintage. And he became, well, a hero to us, but a villain for the locals because he was sending back these trailers of grapes. And they, they might come in from the field that belonged to the mayor or the chief of police or the head of the fire brigade. Or but if he looked at the grapes and he said they were no good, he said, take them away. And they tried to freeze him out, poor Samuel. I mean, he couldn't get anything to eat. He had to move to a neighboring village. He was a very brave young man. And he actually saved the day, really. He makes delicious wines today. He's been on the show. The wines are amazing. Oh, really? Yeah, but he does the export now. He, he, he's a marvelous winemaker, natural. So let me ask you one question before we go. If someone were to come to you now in their 20s, like you interviewed Andre Simon when you were 22, 23, what would you tell them as a piece of advice in their own career if they were interested in wine, no, history? I think now, with the proliferation of wine and wine knowledge around the world, I would probably say don't try and do what I do. Don't try to know everything. Hugh Johnson has made readers feel like they've known everything for a long time. Thank you very much for being here today. It's been a pleasure, Leo. Thank you so much. Hugh Johnson has been a author of wine and also gardening books for over 50 years, a television commentator on wine, and a personal inspiration. Thank you. Daniel Jonas and Peter Leem have announced the third edition of La Fête de Champagne, which takes place November 3rd through the 6th of this year in New York City. La Fête de Champagne's program has always included a series of excellent educational seminars. This year they have included three standouts. The first is a tasting tour of Champagne with Peter Leem, focusing on terroir, grape varieties, viticulture, cellar practices, and producers. There will also be a dosage masterclass with Alexander Chartonia and Terry Thies, where guests will get to examine all aspects of dosage in a practical context. And there will be a tasting of Pinot Noir terroir, featuring producers who are known for their skill with Pinot Noir, including Michel Drapier, Charles Philippinat, and Jean-Baptiste Geoffroy. La Fête de Champagne will culminate with two really cool events. There will be a grand tasting of over 100 different champagnes at the Metropolitan Pavilion on Saturday, November 5th, and there will be a Champagne Gala Luncheon at Restaurant Danielle on Sunday, November 6th. For more information or to buy tickets, visit lafettedechampagne.com. That's L-A-F-E-T-E-D-U-C-H-A-M-P-A-G-N-E.com. That's lafettedechampagne.com. To hear more, about the third edition of La Fête de Champagne happening in November in Manhattan. What I love, <laughs> the question I love to ask about Noah is we know where he landed and planted his vineyard, but nobody knows where he started. So he had grapevines, or he couldn't have planted a vineyard, but where did they come from? So 
what was the port of registry of the of Noah's Ark is a question that is unanswered. Before we go, we have some people to thank. A big thank you to Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett, who wrote and performed our new intro music. Go to robmoose.com, that's robmoose with two O's, dot com, for more information about a very talented musician. Of course, we couldn't do what we do here without the help of Erin Scala, who does the warm-up segments for this show. You can find her own blog at thinking-drinking.com. And Alder Yarrow's excellent website, vinography.com, V-I-N-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y, posts up write-ups and warm-ups for this show, as well as other tremendous content. We are proud to partner with Crush Wine and Spirits in Manhattan for our wine club, offering regularly discounted wines that we feature on this show. You can write to me directly at levyopenswine at gmail.com, levy with an I, openswine at gmail.com, to find out about joining our wine club. And thanks to the many of you who have already signed up. Also, thanks to all of you, our audience. Together we have heard from some of the most fascinating people in wine, and they opened up their hearts and their minds to you and me. You can let us know what you think on our Facebook page. Find it by searching at Drink to That Pod. You can also find us on Twitter at Drink to That Pod, or you can check out the pictures on Instagram at Levy Opens Wine. We love iTunes comments, and we love iTunes subscribers. If you subscribe, you'll see our episodes in your feed much earlier, sometimes even as much as a day or two earlier than you would otherwise, and you'll be able to listen to every episode since number one. That's about 400 episodes since we first got started. If you have an Android phone, you'll be happy to know that we're on Google Play Music as well. Our own website is alldrinktothatpod.com, I-L-L with no apostrophe, drinktothatpod.com, and you can find information there about buying a fancy IDTT t-shirt or a seasonally appropriate hoodie. You can also get information on the website about donating to the show. Donations have really kept this thing going, and you can help do that. Thank you, and see you next episode.